0: All right, a couple of announcements. First of all, as you go out the back, there is a a handout that got sent to us from the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And on one side, you have a comparison between uh, Joe Biden's positions and uh, and Donald Trump's positions. And on the flip side, you have uh, a a comparison contrast between MJ Hager's positions and John Cornyn's positions. So whether you voted or not, just go ahead and pick one up because they're informative. The other thing is I won't be here Thursday night, but I want to encourage you to be here because uh, Scott Griffin's going to be here, and and, uh, he'll be teaching on a significant and relevant topic for this congregation. So it'll be good to be here. Make sure you're here because it's nice when you have a guest speaker. There I go again. Okay. Okay. So we're having sound troubles, for those of you who are live streaming, we're having some some issues with the sound. Anyway, so Scott will be here on Thursday night, and so it's good to have a decent turnout when you have a a guest speaker, and for the microphone to work, and the sound system to work, and the audiovisual to work, and everything else. The other thing I want to talk about is um, a conversation I had on the phone yesterday, I talked with a, um, extended, a member of the extended congregation who lives in Portland, And just outside of Portland, and he was telling me how bad it is, and I don't know how, how bad you think it is, but multiply it by a factor of 10 or 20, and you might be close to reality. Uh, he told me that people who have put Trump signs on their yard or have put Trump signs on their car that they are getting uh, things posted on their front door telling them that you better have your insurance paid up because if Trump wins, we're going to burn your house down. So there's full-scale intimidation by the Antifa crowd. And they're not getting any pushback from most of the locals in Portland because they think, well, they've just got a lot of rage going on because they've been oppressed for so long. See, they bought into the critical race theory completely. They're all a bunch of neo-Marxists. But they reject that. They say, no, 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 we're not Marxists. We're progressive. Well, that's the same thing, and leftists. So they they don't know what it is. They don't want to admit it. And the state education department... operates everything by the progressive, uh, or excuse me, the critical race theory book. Every decision, and his wife is on the local school board, and she's the only one that's not an idiot. And so she has to be very careful with the wisdom of Daniel in how she handles a lot of things, because the the, the first thing a Democrat or a leftist or a progressive does is to call you something. And what do they call you? They call you racist. That's their go-to. When you use the term racist that much, or any term that much, it, it no longer means anything. It's just, it's just an, You're just name-calling, and it. it loses its, its real value, which is really sad because what they're doing is they're diluting the whole concept of, of, of race, racism. So anyway, that's, th- there's a large camp of Antifa people outside of Portland, and nobody does anything about it because most of the people on the city council as well as the mayor have family and or friends who are out there in the Antifa camp. So they are very sympathetic to them. And there it just, it just goes on from there and they continue to destroy property. And the rationale of the people is it's okay. They have a right to because they've been oppressed for so long. And so they have every right to destroy property. So there's a complete loss of the concept of the importance of private ownership of property and that you can 't destroy other people 's property, so it just goes on from there. The people he said a lot of people in his church have been um, have been have received these uh, notes on their door that they 're going to have their their homes burned down if the if trump wins and it it 's just a full scale uh, intimidation attack. It is classic Marxism and the techniques of Marxism. It doesn't matter what the truth is, and if any of you have ever studied what happened in Russia or what happened in other countries that were taken over by Marxists, the first thing that happens is that the people who think they're going to get something out of the whole thing are just shut down, and they're put in the gulags, the intelligentsia, the leftist liberals, the professors, they're the first ones that are killed. That's what happened in Iran. That wasn't a Marxist takeover, but it was a, a Muslim takeover, and that's it operates on the same principles. When tyrants take over, the first thing they do is get rid of the intellectuals who argued for that their elevation to power would bring some sort of freedom. And they get rid of them, and they get rid, of course, of the pastors. They get rid of of uh, any religious leaders, anybody in the community that's considered a leader, they're the first ones uh, that go to the uh, prison camps, they're the first ones that are executed. So this is going on, if that's what's going on in Portland, it's going on in Seattle, it's going on in Minneapolis, it's going on in many other places around the country. And so we need to pray for this country. The only thing that's going to turn it around is going to be the truth of God's word. And, and um, I know of one or two individuals that went to Portland about 20 years ago because they have the largest uh, sort of teenage homelessness at, at, at that point. And they went up there to work with these kids on the street and give them gospel and give them tracts and didn't have much of a response. Incredible amount of drug addiction. And it is these lost souls that are there, that have been there for for 20 years that are the ones who are glad to get paid to do something and so they're getting paid to go riot and destroy things and things of that nature. So it's the, the, the powers that be that are really behind all of this are just as evil as they can be and we need to be in prayer for the safety and security of this country. People who've come here from uh, countries where this has happened in the past are, really are blowing their horn. When I talk to Ukrainians who've moved here they, they, their radar for socialism is so sensitive that uh, they can't believe that so much is going on and has been lost already in this country. How, how far gone we are into socialism, and socialism just leads to further and further loss of personal freedom. The founding fathers—why underst- did they re- uh, why did they make such an issue out of taxation? Because they understood that. How much money the citizen, individual citizen gets to keep of his labor determines how many options of freedom that he has. And when you take away his finances through taxation, that limits his freedom and limits his options, and he's under the control of the government. And a lot of people in our country just don't understand those basic principles anymore. Related to the government, so we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for the Christians who live in these areas, for those who are dealing with this level of intimidation, and that we will have leaders elected who understand the truth, and who are willing to do what is necessary in order to shut down these rebellions, whatever that may whatever that may be within the uh, framework of the, of the of the law. So let's uh, let's begin with. Uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for. Uh, confession of sin, if necessary, to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that ultimately you are the one in control. You are the sovereign of history you are working things out according to your plan and your purpose. We don't know how close or how far we are from the return of our Lord at the rapture. We don't know what exactly you have in mind. We do know that there are times in history when there are civilizations that because they have turned back to you, there has been a, a reverse, reversal of the deterioration and the decline. We also know that that's not the normal pattern. But, Father, we pray for your grace. We pray that you would extend your grace to this nation. We have so many uh, millions of believers here who are strong, who are profoundly involved in supporting churches, supporting missionaries, supporting the gospel ministry. And, Father, we pray that you might extend grace to us that we may continue to proclaim the truth of your word. And we pray that they would find listening ears, those who uh, desire to have peace, they desire to be forgiven, they know that there's things terribly wrong in their lives and they are hopeless, and that the gospel alone provides hope. And only on the basis of the gospel and the truth of your word can there be a a transformation of individuals. And that comes first. They have to be transformed and have their minds renewed by the truth of your word And that doesn't happen quickly. And the result of that is that a nation eventually begins to turn that corner. But we've spent over 100 years in this slide, and it's not going to reverse course overnight. So, Father, we pray for protection for our leaders, for our president. We pray for protection for those who are going to vote. We pray that you would just foil the plans of those who seek to disrupt the election, those who seek to cause trouble and havoc and riot and destruction of property afterwards. We pray that you would expose their evil and that you would open the eyes of so many people in this country to what is going on and why it is evil and why it is not what we want in this nation and that they would reverse course. And above all, Father, we pray that you would give us opportunities to patiently and lovingly give the gospel, communicate truth to those with whom we come in contact, that they may have eternal life and come to know uh, you and come to uh, grow spiritually and have stability in their lives from the word of God that is in their souls. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 30, Psalm 30, and we are going to continue talking about the very beginning of of verse 4 as we have for the last uh, three or four lessons. We are looking at God's standards for beauty, and the reason we are looking at that, that beauty is a biblical standard, is that when we talk about music, we talk about singing to the Lord. I, that this involves the concept of beauty, and we have to ask the question, one that is not often asked, not well answered by many people, uh, what is beauty? And so we have looked at this for, uh, for several weeks, and when we have a command to sing praise to the Lord, as we have in uh, Psalm 30, verse 4, we have to ask certain questions like, how do we do that? How do we sing praise to the Lord? singing involves words. Where do they come from? Who writes the words? What quality should the words have? And one of the things that we should note is that when you look at the poetry of Psalms, actually when you look at all the literature of the Bible, people who are objective recognize this is the best literature in history in the world. That the words of the psalms, the, the poetry of the psalms is, is super, superior to anything. It is exquisite. And it sets a standard that we, should, that we should strive to emulate in the words that we sing, in the hymns that we sing, in the songs that we sing. Also we have to ask, well, where does the music come from? Who writes the music? Who composes the music? What is the difference between good music and bad music? What are the standards? How do we approach that? So uh, this is what we're exploring. This is what I've been talking about. Now, in this slide, it helps us understand something about one of the critical issues in this, and that is, from whence does music come? And the second question is, is music neutral? Is music unaffected by the fall? And so, on one side here, we have God as the creator. And the vertical barrier there is the distinction between the creator God and his creation. God is infinite, he is an infinite personal God. He is omniscient, he knows all that is knowable. He is omnipotent, which means he has all power to do whatever he wills. And he is omnipresent. He is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. But the universe itself and everything within the universe is finite. There is an edge to the universe. It just doesn't go on and on and on forever. It has an, an end. And so, in this finite universe, God created a number of things. He creates matter and energy. It doesn't just. It's not self-existent. Matter and energy have a source, and God creates matter and energy. And on the first day after Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And then the next picture we see is of the Holy Spirit uh, brooding upon the deep uh, the the, the waters, the turbulent, chaotic waters of, of creation. Because there has been something negative that has happened, and I believe that the fall of Satan occurs between Genesis one one and one two. Didn't take a lot of time, but it's the earth has been judged, and then God the Holy Spirit begins to renovate it. And the first thing he does is he creates light and separates light from darkness. And then as the days progress, on the third day he creates vegetation before he has created the solar body. So you have light in a form prior to the fourth day. The fourth day he creates the sun and the moon and the stars also. The way it's written, it's like, well, the stars, that's just an afterthought. He creates the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars also. Yeah, he did that too. So what we see here is that the focal point is geocentric. It's on the earth. And the, there's there's this light that is not associated with specific light bodies, that's created on the first day. Then there's vegetation on the third day, and then on the fourth day he creates he creates the sun, the moon, and the and the stars, and then he begins to fill the earth with the animals on the sixth day and mankind, and he defines who man is. And so man is perfect, and he's created in God's image and likeness in order to rule over the creation. Not to rule over it in a destructive way, to, but to improve it, to develop it, to build it. God has given all the raw materials, all the natural resources on the earth, and it is man's, God, man's job to learn about it, to explore it, and to develop it uh, under God's authority. God is the one who defines man's purpose to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and to rule over God's creation. God develops the social relationships in terms of the divine institutions of marriage and family, which leads to law and eventually to politics. All of these are under God's control initially. And then there's the development of ethics and standards and right and wrong is indicated from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when God says you can eat from anything, but if you eat from the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. There's a separation from God, but the physical death isn't first mentioned until the end of Genesis 3 when God says, and from dust you came to dust you will return. That immediate death was a spiritual death. They're alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18, and that is the definition of spiritual death. So also there's the creation of, of, uh, there's aesthetics, because God has created everything perfect, and that means it's perfectly beautiful. It is splendid. It is awesome, it is magnificent. All of these different words that we, we've studied that are in the Bible to describe it, it is, it is glorious, it is splendid. It, it is beyond man's ability to, to clearly articulate. And so God creates according to a standard that is within himself. And in aesthetics, God creates art and music and literature. All of this is is grounded in that. Uh, you say, "Well, when did God create literature? Well, in the beginning was what the word so there 's communication. God is the one who is thinking that literature of the Bible is already with and has always been within his thinking, so he is the He is the ultimate reference point for everything. There was a statement attributed to Jean Paul Sartre, who was an existentialist philosopher, who made an astute observation that a finite point is meaningless without an infinite reference point. If it just exists without anything to relate it to, it has no meaning and purpose. And because he rejected the idea of an infinite reference point, man's life for the existentialist was basically meaningless and hopeless. So the same thing is true with art and music and literature. That the Everything has meaning because there is an ultimate standard, an ultimate reference point which is within the character of God. And so what we learn from studying Scripture is that truth and beauty, which are considered uh, critical elements, truth and order and beauty, all of these go together in what, what defines that which is aesthetically pleasing, that that resides in the thinking of God and his character. It's eternal. It's not something that God created at some point, but it is within himself. He himself is beautiful. And the lines tell us that God created everything, so God defines everything. He is the one who tells us what these things are. But because man is corrupt and sinful and he's fallen, he, he distorts things. He's not on the right wavelength. It's like when, you're, when you are driving in a big city like Houston and you turn on the radio and you're listening to the radio and, and everything is wonderful and you've got a clear signal... But you start driving out I-10 towards San Antonio and you get past Columbus and all of a sudden all you have is a lot of static. You're still getting a signal but it's warped and it's messed up. And that's what's happened to man. He still gets a signal but it's all confused. And because he's spiritually dead. And God is the one who's going to speak to that. But God is the one who speaks to every issue. He is the ultimate reference point. Now when I talk about this issue we talk about music and we talk about art and we talk about beauty for many people these things are culturally relative well you know, the greeks had their idea of beauty the romans had their idea of beauty but the asians the chinese had their idea of beauty the japanese had their idea of beauty the the different tribes in africa had their idea of beauty so beauty is just relative they're, they're, you know, each person has their own concept of beauty. But let's develop that just a little bit. And what we learn is that, that each culture develops their belief systems, but they are built off of their different views that's ultimately grounded in their rebellion against God they are making up their own values. They rejected God's value, they're spiritually dead, and now they're making up their own truth, they're making up their own values, they're making up their own ideas apart from God. And this is what I mean when I talk about culture, that things are culturally relative, but that doesn't mean there's no divine archetype. They are culturally relative. So when we talk about the word culture there's a popular meaning and that is that the idea that the quality in a person or a society that arises from a concern for what is regarded as excellent in the arts and letters and manners and scholarly pursuits and literature and drama music all of that and people think of culture and that's that's really in one sense high culture you know you go to the opera Incidentally, operas were not originally written for the people who were well-trained and university-trained, and and the elites of society, they were written to entertain the common people. What's happened in the 20th century is you get this perversion that creates a distinction in music between... Uh, that which, was, which is considered classical and that which is popular. But that's a 20th century creation that's, that is not the way it's been uh, historically. But it creates this idea that there's this, oh, this is sort of an elitist idea. You have to have a special education and everything and money to enjoy and all of these other things. And we think of culture in that sense. But, but there's another meaning to the word culture. And that is that that any group of people have a set of beliefs and behaviors which characterize that group. Whether it is a small group like your family, you have a family culture. Even if it's just you and your wife, you have a culture in that home, a way in which you do something, beliefs and behaviors, things that are acceptable, things that are not acceptable. And so you have that as a sort of a microculture And then as you get into larger groups, you may have uh, teams, football teams have a culture. A team at a corporation has a culture. You go to work for one business, and there's a culture in that office. And then you go to another job, and you say, oh, well, this is a much better culture. I really like it here. Uh, you didn't like and you didn't realize the other one had problems until you went someplace better but each business has a culture and i really wasn't aware of that I, that way of thinking but in my i guess it was a second church i pastored up in uh, up in irving up up in near dallas that one one of the leaders in the church this was his job that he was a real entrepreneur type of guy and he went into businesses and he would do a complete workup on the culture in the business and identify what its strengths and weaknesses were so that they could uh, improve the culture in the business so that they could become uh, more productive and consequently more successful. So you have cultures. You also have subcultures within a country that can relate to geography. They can relate to ethnicity. So you can have cultures like uh, Pastor Young is here. He's very familiar with the Korean culture. And the non-Christian Korean culture is going to be different from the Christian Korean culture. And a Christian Korean culture is going to be different from an American uh, Christ- Christian culture in, in some significant ways. And that, I'm not saying that it's one's better, one's worse. They're, they're, just, they're just different. You have uh, within the black community, when I used to work with WHW, uh, they were mostly missionary Baptists. There were some others that were there, and they had a certain kind of culture within their churches. But the, one one of the men there that uh, I became friends with over time uh, told me about his wife's family, and they went to uh, Baptist churches that had a completely different culture than the ones that most of these men had. And so even within... Uh, an ethnic group you have different cultures you have in in the black community you have ame churches african methodist episcopal churches they'll have a different culture than a primitive baptist or excuse me a missionary baptist church and they might have different cultures than a than a black presbyterian church and the same thing is true in uh, among uh, caucasian churches you go over to uh, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, and they're going to have a different culture. They'll have different beliefs, and they have different behaviors that are in relation to those beliefs. And so you have you have these microcultures, these subcultures, and then you have some... Uh, we talk about a broader culture, such as the American culture or English culture, but but these terms include so many different subcultures. Now it's hard to really say there is an American culture or there is a British culture or a French culture because there have been so many uh, things that have, that have changed. And so what, what identifies these cultural groups are certain beliefs and behaviors that characterize them. And so these beliefs influence the values, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. They influence the values. They influence the priorities, the actions of a group of people. And in this sense this is important what the bible speaks of as worldliness is really a word that describes whatever the culture is around you that isn't based on the bible the beliefs and the behaviors that are not based on biblical truth and and so when when we get in this, this situation like we're in now and you have these r- racial ethnic all this divisiveness and everything i I don't care. You can have somebody over here that that is Caucasian, that's in and has certain values that they have picked up from from their subculture that may or may not have any relationship to the Bible. You have over here a Hispanic culture and they have different uh, values, different traditions, things, things of that nature. And over here you have uh, the same thing with the black culture. You may have an Indian Christian community that is probably going to be more Pentecostal, charismatic. But, uh, but up here you have biblical truth. And the closer that these groups get to biblical truth, like going up the sides of a, of a triangle, the closer they're going to get to one another but when they're further apart then you're going to have have more problems. And so you do have cultures that develop their own standards of you can go to Africa, you can go to a tribal society, a primitive African tribe and you will see certain uh artwork. But it's reflective of their animism, their spiritism, their other re- religious beliefs. And it is not reflective of thinking through the presuppositions of Scripture in terms of identifying that which is, is beautiful in terms of an absolute. And then you go to another country, and you'll have the same kinds of things. Their, their uh, beadwork or their paintings or, uh, for example, in, in China, you have their work with uh, silk. Uh, this, this takes a different slant. Because, But it's all influenced by the presuppositions of their beliefs and because beliefs always drive behavior. But once you get into the influence of the truth, for example, let me back up. You have in Africa. In Africa, let's go back 2,000 years, roughly the time of Christ. In Africa, you have different nations, you have tribes, you have all these all these primitive groups that are animistic, spiritistic, idolatrous. They have no idea of the truth. And they have matriarchal societies and they have uh, different kinds of, of cultures beliefs, and beliefs di- and it produces a different kind of music and art and all of these other things. And then in, in Europe, you have pagan cultures there, the Goths, the Visigoths, you have the Romans, you have the Greeks, you have... Uh, those who are living up in the area of Scandinavia, you have the Angles uh, and the Celts you had Celts that migrated from east to west across across Europe and one group stayed back in Asia Minor and they became known as the Galatians GLT and KLT, the soft guttural G, goes to a hard guttural K and it goes from uh, Glt to Klt, Klt you put add the vowels, and it's Celt. So the Galatians were Celtic, and you had Celtic migrations that went to a place that later became known as Gaul. What are the consonants? G L. What are the first two consonants in Galatians? G L. So just a spinoff there, and another group goes over to uh, to Britain. And some end up in Ireland and in, in Scandinavia, and they're split into different factions and whatever. But they're they are they're primitive. They practice all sorts of, uh, just like those in Africa, they're practicing animism and spiritism and all of these other things. But something happens in both places that changes things. Remember, there's an Ethiopian eunuch that gets saved through the ministry of Philip in, I think it's around Acts chapter 6 or 7. And so he takes the gospel down, and and it begins to take root in Africa. You have others that went to Libya and Cyrene because they they were there at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And before the Islamic expansion, you had a very vibrant, strong Christian church in North Africa. You had the gospel that penetrated Western Europe through Romans, and, it, and it's taken very, very early to Britain. It's taken to France. It's taken to eventually to the Scandinavian countries and to the Germanic tribes. And it takes hundreds of years for the Word of God to expand and for people to get into it and think about, well, how does this impact our understanding of law? How does it impact our understanding of rulership and kingship? And how does it influence the way we have families and the way we have marriages? And so this is the progress that occurs over time in Western Europe so that Western Europe is completely transformed from primitive animistic uh, idolatry to to bi- biblical christianity and of course it really flowers after the protestant reformation which is 1517 this is 1500 years after christ and so and and then after the protestant reformation what happens is they begin to think about well how does the word of god affect our understanding of music and lyrics, and it, it, it develops. And so what we think of as the high-water mark of hymnody from the time of Isaac Watts into the middle to late 19th century, and especially among the English people, there is the development of music on the basis of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And that's where it comes from. And so this idea today that you have that, well, that's just white people imposing their European values on us, it it, it totally ignores and denies the reality of history that what made Western Europe different from every place else, every place else is idolatrous, animistic, pantheistic, uh, polytheistic, but what transformed Europe and made it, on the the good side, the positive stuff, because remember... Because everybody sinners, there's no culture that's ever going to be perfect. It's always going to have a lot of people that are unbelievers and they're corrupt and they're sinful and they're evil and all of this stuff. You never cleanse it of all of that. But there are those who are believers, and there is a large percentage that were believers, and they're impacting at a high level. And so when you hear people say, we're against Western civilization, what they're, that's code. We hate Christianity because when you look at these various different movements that are talking about the fact that well, what we need to do is we need to get rid of the Western European concept of the nuclear family. Where did that new concept of the nuclear family come It didn't come from the historic, the historic um, pagans of Europe. It came from the Bible as it was introduced to them. Where did they get their concepts of law? Now there were concepts of law in Greece, and there were concepts of law in in Rome, but what transforms it into concepts of real freedom is the impact of the Mosaic law. That's why when you go to the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., and you look up at the top, at the top and the front, you have Moses holding the Ten Commandments. Even though they kicked the Ten Commandments out of the inside of courtrooms, they they can't get rid of it without blowing up the supreme court building it's a visual representation that this country rep, recognized at one time that ultimately law to provide freedom has to be traced back to the mosaic law and so that's the issue in culture and so when you hear people say well you like your music and i like my music they're culturally ignorant Everybody has tastes that are formed by different influences but part of sanctification is it's going to change our tastes when in relation to clothing in relation to art in relation to music because as we become more uh, more connected to God's reality it changes our perception uh, all ultimately all sin and all rebellion is to su- designed, as Romans one eighteen says, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And when you're truth-suppressing, you're divorced from the truth, you're divorced from reality, you're living in a fantasy world. But the more you get connected with reality, the more that is going to change your values, your tastes, all of these things uh, will be tr- will be transformed. So when we look at Psalm 30 verse 4 and we have this this command to sing praise to the lord we have to ask this question what what makes it better singing what makes it the best what are the value, what are the distinctions that that come to play there because we're not going to get there overnight and it takes time and it takes people who are immersed in the Word to the degree that the Word of God just flows out of them. And when you read, and I'm not trying to take anything away from some of the modern hymn writers, because there are some who are trying to write modern hymns. But if you are immersed in the good hymns, and you read the Psalms day in and day out, that that builds a quality here. I remember uh, years ago, uh, reading uh, uh, somebody who recommended that that in order to really learn the English language well and to speak well, you should read Shakespeare every day that 's the highest form uh, of the English language, and there 's a rhythm and a meter there i mean it 's just phenomenal, and I did that for a while and it and it does it sort of lifts up your concept of of everyday language. And so if people are immersed in the Bible then this comes out of them and the people, the hymn writers uh, at the time of uh, Isaac Watts in the late 1600s and early 1700s and through that period these people memorized big chunks of the Bible not just chapters but book after book after book and they repeated it to themselves over and over again and so when when they wrote this just came out of their souls. But if you have an evangelical culture that is shallow, where people are not enriched in their souls with the Word of God, that they don't spend... They may spend a lot of time in it, but they don't spend enough time in it. Not like they did, because we have too much entertainment that distracts us. But what it, it transforms them. And so there's a depth... To what on on the best hymn, not not just because it 's an old hymn doesn 't mean it 's good. there are a lot of old hymns that aren 't very good and they 're shallow and superficial because the people who wrote them were shallow and superficial. But when you take that that the cream off the top, you have a level of depth of spirituality that is that is profound, and that 's why we 're still singing those hymns two, three, four, five. We even have one hymn in the hymnal. That that was written uh, seven or eight hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, that has staying power. But the 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 choruses that are written today, because they're shallow, they're superficial. The only thing that's powerful about them for people is the uh, emotions that are just, that are stirred by the music. That what happens is is that that there's n- no staying power there because the words lack. Depth. They lack staying power. They're not. They're not the classic standards that will survive time. So singing is important. We're commanded again and again to sing to the Lord. We've gone over these verses in Psalm. I mean, Ephesians five eighteen. Uh, the first result of being filled by means of the Spirit is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're communicating to each other when we are singing together because everybody should be thinking about the words. That's why I, I've gotten so many positive comments from people about what I've been doing, taking time to do this year, and help us to think through what the words mean and explaining that on the the hymns that we're singing. And so this is a result. Also in Colossians 3.16, we're to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Let the Scripture richly dwell within us and the result is it produces wisdom skillful living and that results in teaching and admonishing one another through the songs that we're singing and this leads to, this is the result of spiritual growth and spiritual development so that we have these two words teaching that's to, means didasko which means to teach to instruct uh, it aims at the mind, not at the emotions, whereas most of the music that we have today they 're trying to capture a sense of godliness by creating an emotional uh, an emotional tenor an, an emotional mood, and if you can reach that emotional mood, then you 're godly but that 's not what the Bible says. We don't try to generate it by the music. It's the words. And you read the words apart from the music, and they are profound, and God uses them to challenge us and to pierce our souls. So they teach, they instruct, and nuthete'o means to warn, to correct, to admonish, to encourage. And so that's the result, uh, should be the result of the songs that we sing. They're not about us. And if you look at so many of these modern choruses, they're all about me, 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 I, 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 and what I'm doing for God. And if you look at the good historic hymns, they talk about what God has done for us. And they remind us of God's grace and of the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and of the fact that his grace has brought us salvation and it it transforms us. And as we look at these things, what we've established so far is first of all that singing is highly valued and uh, highly praised as an aspect of our spiritual life and it's not optional. We're to sing praise to the Lord. It's not an option. Second, what we just saw is that it's a byproduct of being filled by means of the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. Third, The study of beauty or aesthetics which we've gone through relates to our appreciation of human creativity under the authority of God and that the standard should be excellence. There's a great quote that I discovered from Vince Lombardi, and I've just sort of paraphrased it from memory. He says, While we can never achieve perfection in this life, If we aim for perfection, perhaps we might hit excellence. But if you aim for mediocrity, you're going to fall short of mediocrity. And mediocrity doesn't glorify God unless that's the absolute best you can possibly do. And some people in some cultures, they they just don't have, you know, the skill sets. They don't have the education. They don't have the training. and, And that's the best they can do. But, but that, doesn't, that doesn't apply to us in, in America. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, eating and drinking are pretty mundane activities. Everybody does that many times during the day, and sometimes we do it too many times during the day. But we're to, if we are to do that, to the glory of God, the way in which we eat and what we eat to the glory of God, then what about what we're doing in corporate worship when we come together uh, to sing to the Lord? We've looked at in the last couple of weeks that modern refinements on the concept of beauty would include three things. First of all, unity or integrity of the parts to the whole. That, that when God creates, God creates the whole and it is beautiful and all of the parts down to the microscopic parts are also beautiful. There is a relationship between the parts to the whole and the whole to the parts. So there's a unity or integrity there. God doesn't just create things that are functional. He creates things that are functional but they're also beautiful second thing that we, we've learned is that in a modern view of beauty, that it has something to do with proportion or harmony, uh, that there's an order and a harmonious relationship between the parts. And the third thing is there's a splendor to it. It's glorious, it's magnificence. It's without monotony or chaos. And ugly is just the opposite. There's a lack of unity, there's a lack of form, order, and harmony, and the colors and the textures in the organization. It's chaotic. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. There is an absolute standard for beauty that goes beyond personal preference, that goes beyond personal, uh, per- personal ideas and, and subcultural ideas. He has made everything uh, beautiful. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see that there was an exceptional choir and orchestra in the temple. They were hand-picked. They were the cream of the crop. They would have had auditions. Everybody would have had to have been, because this was the best that the nation could do. And the temple itself was, was incredibly beautiful. Now, the synagogues that they built out in the villages and in the smaller towns, they they could, they didn't have the finances, the resources to make those synagogues measure up to the standards of the temple. But they did the best that they could do. And they did the best they could do with whatever musical talent they have. And that's, that's where we are as a church. You have small churches. They can't do our church could never do something like what First Baptist or Second Baptist or some of these larger churches do. Uh, Christ Presbyterian down I 10 does a, a, a magnificent uh, uh, drama of the, of the Handel's Messiah, performance of Handel's Messiah every Christmas. It's just fantastic. I mean, in my opinion, that's one of the greatest works of art to glorify God. And so it fits a standard. And that encourages us to do the best we can do with whatever God has given us. Not try to do it according to what somebody else did it, but the best that God has given us. And so we look at the, we've looked at the various definitions of beauty. We've seen that God makes all things beautiful, that he sets the standard, and that he describes these things. So that the Bible uses a number of different terms to express this idea of things that are beautiful, objectively beautiful, intrinsically beautiful. Words like glorious, magnificent, majestic, splendid, beautiful, excellent. We've looked and studied at all of those. And last time we ended with this word "tove," which is the word that God uses in um, in Genesis chapter 1. And so we went through various other scriptures dealing with God's beauty, but I wanted to f- conclude with this study of tove. John, in Genesis 131, we read, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Now, at the beginning of each uh, day, God makes a statement, and he assesses his work. In verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 23, God says at the end of the day, and God looked and it was good. It fit a plan. He had a plan. It, it, it's it's a blueprint. God, as it were, designed this blueprint, and he broke it down into six stages, and each day I'm going to uh, build a different part. And at the end he says it's according to plan. It is a word that has uh, many ideas related to it, and so you really have to look at the context. <clears throat> I just put some of these up on the screen. In the um, Word Study Old Testament Dictionary, a tov is defined as it has these this range of meaning to be happy, to please, to be loved, to be favored, to seem good, to be acceptable, to endure, to be valuable, to do well, and to do right. Now that's a pretty disparate list of of ways in which it can be translated. So you really have to look at the context. In the somewhat better Lexicon: the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, it lists these definitions. It can mean merry or pleasant or desirable or something that is in order, something that is usable, something that is qualitatively or intrinsically good, something that is efficient, something that is pleasing or beautiful, something that is someone who is friendly, someone who's kind, someone who has good character, good value... Uh, someone who's brave, someone who's morally good. Uh, it could mean to please or to enjoy oneself. In the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, which is a recent lexicon that has been published, it has the con- they list the concepts of good, virtuous, kind, happy, content, healthy, prosperous, plentiful, well-fed, and well-disposed. Look at that. Those three different dictionaries hardly overlap at all in terms of their list of English words to communicate the word range of that word tov. And so one of the concepts is this idea in Halot that mentions that something is in order, something has, it fits the plan, and it is according to God's design. So God has an archetype. What God is going to create is going to be the best. God's not doing slipshod work. And so God is going to create something that is perfect. So he has, a, it, this tells us he's got this external standard. Leland Ryken, who's, who's actually background, is a literature professor and has written quite a bit in different areas on the Psalms and on the Bible as literature, quite a few other things. And he writes about this word. He says, it is also implied, that is the idea of beauty, that this is also implied by the fact that the sense of the term Tov, denoting a thing that is excellent of its kind, rules out the possibility that the assessment regards the mere subjective response to creation by either the writer or God himself. The use of Tov in this narrative suggests not just personal delight or pleasure, but an objective quality about creation itself, irrespective of any particular person's response. And God took delight in his handiwork. And so what we see is that God is the cosmic artist who creates the entire cosmos, the entire universe, so that the heavens declare the glory of God according to Psalm nineteen one, And we've studied this idiom for the glory of God, that that relates to the essence of God, that all of his attributes combined are, are glorious. They're splendiferous. They are beautiful. They, it made God beyond anything we can imagine and make him um, magnificent. And his artwork in the creation displays his artistic ability. And this is the same thought that is echoed in Romans 1, 19 through 20, which we have also recognized. And so his his work in creating animals and their colors and all of the variations, just watch some of these shows that they have on PBS related to animals and you just see the most incredible things under the water, above the water. God has, you know, you have this complexity, this variation that takes place. And it's not uh, simple or simplistic, but in some sense it is. Because that's what you see is that unity and diversity that you have in the Trinity itself. There's a unity of God and a diversity of God. Often we get into a situation where people think it's good music or it's good art if I like it. Well that makes it totally subjective. But there are certain standards. First thing that we see in God's creation is that things are planned. They're orderly. They're thought through in every detail. So when we think about music, when we think about the words that we sing, it's not haphazard, it's not spontaneous, it is well thought out and well crafted. And may take time to fine-tune it. It is second, it is technically excellent so that you look at the structure of the words the organization of the words the rhythm, the beat, the meter the tone, the mood, all of these factors and it is uh, 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 it's technically excellent and it has moral integrity moral integrity from the words, the concepts the content that is expressed in the words of scripture fourth, it is purposeful it's not just there randomly, it's not just something that's splattered out there like a Jackson Pollock painting, it is something that was designed with order, meaning, and purpose to fulfill a, 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 an intention. Uh, fifth, it displays both simplicity and complexity, which is what I was talking about a minute ago. God is simple, He is one, He is a unity. But God is complex, He exists as three persons. And he is the one and the many. that's a big philosophical concept that's been debated for years uh, it, that, that that life is not a unity and it is c- complex and the ancient Greeks talked about things that are that are being versus that which is becoming, and you have Heraclitus and Parmenides, and they debated, and that's been the debate down through the centuries. But when you're not grounded in the unity and diversity of the triune God, then you can't resolve the tension between unity and diversity. In music, music has a resolution. It has resolution in in the the various phrases of the music, and it has resolution in the total work. It has proportionality, uh, which we see in uh, visual art as well, but we see that uh, proportionality, and so... The the chords are pleasing to the ear, and it has originality. All of this reflects what we derive from God's creation. Some of you may be familiar with a work of literature called A Wrinkle in Time, written by Madeleine Lingle, and she wrote in another place talking about art. She says, if it's bad art, it's bad religion, no matter how pious the subject. I love that quote. If it's bad art, if it's bad music, if it's bad lyrics, then it's bad religion, it's bad worship. It doesn't honor and glorify God. So what we've learned is that these words, beauty, magnificence, glory, splendor, are not human-based concepts, but they have an ultimate reference point in the eternal perfections of the creator God who is therefore the source of all beauty. And from that, it follows that all beauty within creation is beautiful because of its relationship to the intrinsic value within the character of the creator God. Everything goes back to that creator. That's why everything in the creation declares the glory of God. And everything God created was beautiful, but it suffered creation through the fall, so that music which is in heaven before the fall of Satan because in Ezekiel 28, it talks about his timbrels and its pipes. These are musical terms that, that once there's the fall and sin enters in, everything gets corrupted, including music, including visual arts, written art. Everything gets corrupted. Nothing is neutral anymore. So you can't say, well, well this culture has this and it's okay and that culture has that. That's that. You can't get into this multiculturalism of postmodernism when you relate to these values it has to go back to the creator of God, but everything's been corrupted by sin, so we have to constantly work against it to bring it into or- an order that glorifies God as best we can bring it to those particular standards. The result is that singing in the church and in the worship of the holy creator God should not reflect the standards of a fallen, corrupt human culture. Think about that. Every culture is corrupted by sin. Why do we turn to a corrupt worldly culture to seek our standards for the music that we sing in the worship of God's church, the Bride of Christ? It should be different in church. What you have that came out of the church growth movement is that they interviewed all kinds of people and said, why don't you go to church? Well, they sing these songs and, and we don't know them and they're, it, it's, it's antiquated music and we just feel uncomfortable and so we, we don't like the singing in church. Okay, well, we'll change the singing and we'll put some drums up front and get a little band with uh, guitars. And there's nothing wrong with guitars or with drums. It's the way they're used within the structure. And so we'll get it all together so that we sing just like the world sings outside the church. So you'll be comfortable. In other words letting the unbeliever determine what the standards are for music and worship inside the walls of the church. So the church should not be a reflection. When somebody that's an unbeliever that is a pure pagan walks into the church and encounters the culture within the church it should be different it should be different because the culture inside the church has been shaped by the word of god and it should stand in contrast to the to the external culture so that's the start of psalm 30 verse 4 sing praise to the lord you saints of his and the word translated saints is the Hebrew word chassid, where we get our word chassidic. And it has to do with those who are faithful. It comes from the root word chesed. Chesed means God's faithful, loyal, he is faithful and loyal to his covenant. So even though you have these, these definitions of pious ones or godly ones, if you look at the, the, the basic meaning of the word, it has to do with being faithful to God and his word. And so that 's what what David is addressing that that the faithful believers to that when God has intervened in their life that we should sing praise uh, praise to him, and then that is parallel to the giving of thanks now this word that's translated the giving of thanks is from the Hebrew word yada," which has as its root meaning confess or praise and what i didn't learn until recently. As there's no it has come to mean thanks over time, but that wasn't the core semantic meaning of this word there in biblical Hebrew, original originally there's no concept of thanks, it is a concept of confessing what God has done that's what praise is it's admitting and acknowledging what God has done in our life, and what does that give rise to? It gives rise to gratitude, and so that's why the word comes to mean. Gratitude, and so for those of you who've been to Israel, and most of you here have been to Israel, that um, when you learn, one of the first things you learn is what? Good morning, boker tov, and then you learn how to say thank you, and the word is toda. This is a form of yada toda, and it is is thank you. You say thank you very much. It's todama Ma'od. So this here, this is what you have here, is you have confession, praise, and giving giving of thanks. So next time we're going to come back and we'll just briefly review the first four verses and then we'll get down to the fifth verse which is really the heart of this this psalm and you look at that fifth verse or, um, I'm, I'm in Job, I thought I'd open it to psalms. When you look at that fifth verse, his anger's but for a moment, his favor is for life Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now that's really been smoothed out into beautiful poetry in English. But in the Hebrew, it leaves out a lot of words. It's still beautiful, but but it is, it is very, uh, very, it, it's like staccato. It, it leaves out a, a lot of different words. And so I'll show you what that is. And it really, by doing it that way, It drives the point home, the point of that verse home, even more. So that's kind of the high mark in Psalm 30. So we'll come back and look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to focus on beauty, focus on the fact that you are the one who sets the standards that you have created. Beauty, uh, uh, the beauty in the creation is a reflection of the beauty that is in your essential nature. And and Father, that when we create and when we sing and when we uh have art or literature or drama, whatever it may be, that th- we should endeavor to do the best we can do to imitate and reflect uh, your glory, your character, and that which we produce. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand Uh, these things and above all the message of this particular verse that when you have intervened and provided for us and we are to respond in praise and gratitude and the singing of hymns that glorify you and express that praise. In Christ's name, amen.